Has your own mother ever mistaken a cartoon photo of Britney Spears for a photo of you? (laughs) Thankfully. (laughs) She has. Yes, she has. Just checking. It's funny because like people have said that I look like Britney Spears, Mm -hmm. but like not. Not like a doppelganger of Britney Spears. Like, just like some similarities. Just like there's something there that's like, mm-hmm. there's a, there's something. But this card was like, oh my God, she got a picture <laughs> printed of your face. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, I love that. You're listening to Britney Spears, the unconservatorship <laughs> version. Of, I can't wait for the day she gets out I of that. I feel so bad for her. Yeah, I just cannot wait for her to get out and we'll celebrate in the streets. I swear to God, I'm going to start a parade. Okay. <laughs> um, welcome back, guys, to Paranormal. Yeah, welcome back to Paranormal. Guess fucking what? We are live in living color with one another together <laughs> finally after eight months yeah that's not, pretty crazy nine months yeah yeah almost nine months yeah because it was before I got pregnant Prognant. pregnant yep. yeah damn girl well I'm excited to be back I'm excited to see your dog <laughs> I'm excited to see your boyfriend <laughs> yeah he was very excited to see you as well <laughs> uh, all right yeah. well uh Let's get into it. Let's get into Yeah, we've got a long do we, episode today. Do we have today, any, so. any pre, uh, pre-show stuff to talk about? No, but I was going to tell you that I found a TikToker that looks like you. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. So I'll show you her account later. I would like to later. see her too. Okay. She does like home home renos, but um, like for like strictly for people who rent and on a and on, on an extreme budget. And oh. I'm like, I'm down to watch these videos. I love I love it. a good budget uh reno so i think we should do a poll as to who i look like most with our sure with our patrons the britney spears cartoon or the tiktok or that one girl that another uh listener told us yes. that i look like I yes her name but me too but we'll find Instagram. her um yeah we'll, we'll determine which one i look most like yeah uh all right although no one has seen me in person but whatever it's fine. <laughs> uh all right well today we are uh you want to do horoscopes first and then tell them the theme? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll start because I think I'm first You this are week. first, yeah. So, an invitation to an important social event could come today, Leo. This may be a chance to meet important people who could advance your career in some way or who might be involved in a field that interests you. Your own energy and enthusiasm won't be lost on them. You will obviously be speaking from the heart when you discuss what's on your mind. Um, I have not received any invitation to anything so far today uh yeah i, I would love to I, cordially invite you to a business conference yeah no and honestly like keep the business invites away from yeah. me right now i'm not really into networking <laughs> that much right at this moment not um i mean i'm planning to possibly go to to a wedding in october but that's about it for big like invites mm-hmm. uh and your baby shower mm-hmm. in three weeks two weeks yeah. so three weeks really yeah. it can't wait <laughs> all right enough. so all right. doesn't ring true no, for you today true that was very specific too so. yeah it was all right so um gemini romantic desire tempers sorry romantic desire tempers spiritual passion today and you may want to pursue both gemini 
Perhaps your romantic partner is as spiritually inclined as you, and you aspire towards the same ends. Much of the passion you feel wells from deep within, so if you're creatively inclined in any way, you may want to memorialize these feelings through writing, painting, or music. Um, I'm going to be really creative today with this podcast, so I guess that's... With your... With me. Yeah. With your partner. With my partner. With your romantic partner, me. Um... I don't know. Steven's working today and yeah. being pregnant, like especially like I'm in my third trimester now. So I'm, you know, not that far along from giving birth and I don't feel sexy at all. So, <laughs> so probably not. Yeah, that's fair. So not in the stars today for us. Nick. That's cool. That's cool. All right. All right. Well, we are doing, you want to tell them what we're doing? Yeah. So we're doing hauntings that have to do with serial killers as well. So um, get ready because these ones are doozies, I they feel. They are doozies. They're good. Um, They're good. So I actually found out about this story from TikTok. Um, there was a little video about it. And so I'm doing the devil's tree that's in uh, Port Port porn <laughs> that's in St. Lucie, Florida. I got my information from Miami Haunts, Wikipedia, Miami Ghost Chronicles, and WeirdUS.com. I just want to give a really quick trigger warning because this has a lot of like really graphic details, uh, including rape and murder, obviously. So uh, just going to quickly throw that out there before you guys start so the devil tree which is found in port st lucie florida is a mighty oak tree in a county park on canal c24 but this unsuspecting tree is no ordinary tree it has an evil reputation wrapped with serial killings and the paranormal on january 8th 1971 our story starts with serial killer gerard john schaefer who sexually attacked and mutilated two teenage girls After having his way with them, he hung them from the oak tree and then buried them in a shallow grave underneath the tree, only to return several times later to have his way with the decomposing bodies. Yeah, that's always really gross to me, Um, obviously, or to anyone else who's normal. Schaefer had begun experimenting with bondage and sadomasochism when he was around 12 years old. He admitted to his psychiatrist that tying himself up to trees sexually aroused him and that he was hurting and pleasuring himself while he was thinking about assaulting women from a very young age. So totally normal, right? Um, As he got older, he got a girlfriend who he would enact rape fantasies with. They ended up breaking up, obviously. In 1966, he attempted to become a priest. So this seems like a really good path. Yeah. (laughs) But he ended up being rejected because he lacked faith, is what the Catholic Church said. It was at this time that he started experimenting with animal cruelty. And that's as far as I'm going to go into any type of talk about animals. He ended up abandoning the Catholic religion and had resolved to become a professional serial killer. So goals, right? Uh, so, you know, he, he knows the path he wants to take. <laughs> On October 2nd, 1966, Nancy Leichner, 20 years old, and Pamela Nader, 21, were with their boyfriends in Alexander Springs Park in the Ocala National Forest. The girls had decided to go for a walk together, just the two of them, and when the girls didn't return after a few hours, their boyfriends called law enforcement and a search ensued. 
Their bodies were found choked and they had been molested. They were Schaefer's first victims. He had gotten away with it without even becoming a suspect. Yeah. At this point, he decides to do the next most logical thing. And he's like, you know, obviously I'm I want to be a serial killer. Like this is my passion. This is my passion project, but I need to make money somehow. So he decides that he's going to turn to a career in law enforcement, as most sociopaths do, and eventually became a sheriff's deputy. So he would use his badge to attract his victims. On September 8th, 1969, Schaefer's neighbor, Lee Hainline Bonadies, disappeared. She had told her husband that their neighbor had offered her a $20,000 salary to join the CIA. But her husband laughed it off and then came home to find a note from his wife saying that she was going to Miami to speak with Schaefer about the job. So then her brother calls Schaefer to ask him about his sister's whereabouts, and Schaefer told him a really weird story about she had called him for a ride to the airport because she was going to Cincinnati, Ohio. Her car was found in Fort Lauderdale, and she was never seen again. Three months later, he was employed as an intern or a student teacher at Plantation High School. A cocktail waitress named Candy Halleck had called her sister-in-law on December 18th in 1969 to tell her that she had an appointment with a male teacher from a local junior college that evening. The teacher claimed to also have worked undercover for the government and could possibly have an employment opportunity for Candy. On Christmas Day, her sister-in-law still hadn't heard from Candy since that phone call, and so she went to her apartment to see if she was okay, but Candy was nowhere to be found. Her keys, her driver's license, and the vehicle's registration were also all missing. And there was an outfit that she described to her sister that she was going to wear to the meeting, and the outfit was also not there. Um, Her car was later found abandoned in a parking lot. Candy's remains were found a decade later in Boca Raton, Florida. So I... There... I could have gone on for so long about probable victims and I want to like give them the justice by naming them but this episode would have literally been two hours long so I'm gonna just skip to like the two murders that he was convicted of um so he was only ever convicted of two and we will get to them but after he was convicted the police found a bunch of possible victims and missing people reports that were also most likely his victims Um, While he was in prison, he boasted that he had killed more than 30 girls and women. On July 21st, 1972, Schaefer picked up two teenage girls who were hitchhiking, Nancy Trotter and Patricia Sue Wells. He kidnapped them, he took them to the woods, and tied them to the tree. He threatened to kill them or sell them into prostitution, and he was about to murder them when his police radio went off and he was called to an emergency. He left the girls tied up, and by some miracle, they were able to get out of their ties, and they ran to the nearest police station, which ironically was the same station where he was working. When he came back to the tree, he saw that his victims were gone, and he decided that the smartest thing to do was to call his station to tell them that he had, quote, done something foolish. I mean, I'll say. Uh, (laughs) He did the absolute most predictable thing, and he told the sheriff that he had merely pretended to kidnap the girls to scare them away from ever hitchhiking again. Believable, right? 
thankfully the sheriff didn't believe him which like shocks me um and he was fired and stripped of his badge and he was hit with a ton of charges so i don't know how this was allowed to happen but the guy ends up posting bail and was released and two months later on september 27th 1972 he kidnapped tortured and murdered susan place who was 17 and georgia jessup who was 16 and he buried their remains under the devil tree a few months later he actually beat the kidnapping kidnapping charges for nancy and paula it yeah the two girls that he had tied up that got away he beat the he beat those charges and it was right around this time that some hikers came upon the decomposing and mutilated remains of place and jessup The autopsy revealed that the girls had been tied to the tree at one point, and further investigations revealed that the girls were known hitchhikers. Obviously, the similarities spiked law enforcement's interest, and they issued a search warrant for Schaefer's home. While searching his bedroom, the police found diaries where he wrote out full accounts of the rape and murder of many women, and they also found personal possessions belonging to at least eight women who had gone missing in the recent years. So those other eight women were the women I was talking about before. Um, They found like diaries and jewelry and things that belonged to these women. So obviously he had killed them. Um, But back then it's like no body, no crime, right? Taylor Swift. So he ended up finally being charged with the deaths of Place and Jessup and he was convicted of them in October of 1973. And he was given two life sentences. So fucking thank God for that. On December 3rd in 1995, he was found knifed to death in his cell. And then I wrote, good. (laughs) So his cellmate killed him. And I was like, good for you. Um, Exactly how many women were tied up and killed on the devil tree is up for debate. But one thing that almost everyone agrees on is that the tree is filled with the darkness that Schaefer let out into this world. It apparently is also the site of paranormal events. So it's said that Satanists have chosen the devil's tree as a sacrificial site and meeting place. I feel weird about anything to do with Satanists. I'm always like, I don't really know if I believe that. But I feel like at the beginning of so this is just going off the story. But like I feel like at the beginning of Satanic Panic, it was all just like people who were like super Christian, who were just like making up these stories to scare people. Yeah. And then yeah. eventually... There were people who were pretty sick who were like, that sounds like a cool idea. I'm going to do these things. Right. Mm Because like, Mm -hmm. so anyways, so maybe there were some weird satanic rituals there. Um, More than four women's bodies have been found in the nearby area. Many of them showing signs of being tied to to a tree. They don't know which one and being violently abused. There are countless reports of hikers hearing strange sounds and singing in the trees. Yeah, that one scared me a lot. Um, Hooded figures have been seen prowling the area and the sightings have only grown in numbers over the years. And I didn't write this in here, but in 1992, two boys were being chased by like a bunch of hooded figures and they ran to the road. And as soon as they got to the road and turned around, the hooded figures were gone. So I don't know if they like retreated back into the woods or what happened, but that's like a like a verifiable account of Mm. something that actually happened to real people. And in certain parts of the trails in the area, vegetation refuses to grow. So that's pretty messed up. Authorities have made many arrests in the area of KKK members and the area, which is just like gross, like not paranormal, but nasty. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
The area is ripe with ghost sightings. Most people say that the victims of Schaefer are the ones haunting the forest, and people had actually started taking pieces of the tree, and almost immediately afterwards, some kind of grave misfortune would befall them. Bodiless screams of young women are often heard coming from nearby bathrooms, and the doors in the bathrooms are said to slam shut, which is terrifying to me. Orbs and ectoplasm photos have been taken in the parking lot area, but apparently cameras malfunction when trying to get photos of the actual tree. And I've seen some professional photos of the tree, but they're like all the same, like four or five. So I believe that it's hard to get a photo of it. And we've experienced that firsthand in Niagara on the Lake. And apparently before the park was built, because it was just like woods before they turned it into a national park, right? There was an attempt to cut the tree down, but chainsaws simply would not work when they were around the tree. So then these workers, so what I read from two different articles was that they were literally getting ready to turn it into a national park. So they were like cutting it down for a trail or whatever. So the chainsaws didn't work. So then they tried to cut it down with a two man cross cut saw and all of the teeth fell out of the saw blade. Oh, so then they got an axe and then the axe head fell off when they tried to cut it down with an axe. So they decided to leave the devil tree. And that's the story of the Devil's Tree in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Wow. Yeah. Wild. I thought so. Yeah, that was a good one. I um my my story has some similar uh um nuances to it. All right. But before I get into mine, let's take a quick little break. Um and we'll be right back. Yeah. Okay, so my story um, is about Herb Baumeister, and I got my information from New York Daily News, uh, HuffingtonPost.com, and SciFi.com. All right. So Herb Baumeister uh, met his wife, Julie, in college. The couple got married, had three kids, and began living a rather normal suburban life. In the 80s, Herb and Julie opened up two thrift stores and made enough money to buy their dream home. Fox Hollow Farm was a sprawling 18-acre estate, complete with a five-bedroom home and indoor pool. From the outside, it looked as if the Baumeisters had achieved the perfect life. His humor could be dark, but Herb was by all accounts a hard-working man and a doting father. But when you got inside the Baumeisters' facade, the cracks were visible. Herb was hospitalized shortly after getting married for schizophrenia. He was diagnosed as a teenager, but was never treated for it. The marriage also wasn't going as smoothly as the couple presented it. Herb and Julie were rarely affectionate towards each other. By Julie's own account, they engaged in sexual intercourse five to six times in their 25-year marriage. Are you joking me? Yeah, that produced three children. There's no way. The amount, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, she could just be very fertile. I hate her. The amount of shit I had to go through to have a baby. <laughs> I know, but still, yeah. I mean, that's... But still, that's awful. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. Okay. Anyway, Julie didn't find it to be too, too problematic, apparently. Oh, okay. 
But Herb was hiding his true identity. Tell me she's never had an orgasm without telling me she's never yeah, had no, an she orgasm. Definitely has not. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, uh, Herb was hiding his true identity, and then men began disappearing. Um, so, Roger Goodlett vanished without a trace. Besides his family, nobody seemed to give a damn. In the early 90s, Indianapolis, a man who was last seen at a gay bar, didn't garner too much attention from law enforcement. Luckily for Roger and his family, he had a friend named Tony Harris, who did care and offered to help Roger's family in any way he could. Tony began plastering missing posters with Roger's face all over the gay bar scene that they frequented. In the book, You Think You Know Me by Ryan Green, one night Tony noticed a man sitting at the bar staring straight ahead at one of the posters. The man was awed in the way he was sitting there silently, staring at the poster while licking his lips. Tony immediately felt his stomach drop. His intuition told him that this man knew something about Roger's disappearance. Tony made his way towards the man and thought maybe he was going crazy, just because the man seemed awed didn't make him a serial killer. Tony tried to talk himself out of approaching him. He thought maybe he was overreacting, but whatever doubt he had in his mind didn't stop his body from continuing to walk closer. The man introduced himself as Brian Smart. Eventually, Tony accepted an invitation to leave with Brian. They ventured out of the city and down dark country roads until they reached an estate called Fox Hollow Farm. Mm -hmm. Brian said that the house belonged to his boss. The two men went to the indoor pool where Tony saw several mannequins lying around in different positions, which he found strange. Oh, God. Brian told him that his boss didn't like to be alone, and that is why there were mannequins everywhere. No, they're not mannequins. (laughs) I think they were actually mannequins. Oh, I was like, they're never mannequins. No, they were mannequins, but still (laughs) weird. Tony added it to to basically Brian's list of quirks. The men then started to engage in sexual activity. A session of autoerotic asphyxiation ensued. Brian especially enjoyed this. He relayed how he felt an enormous rush by taking men to the brink of death, watching their eyes bulge and their lips crack. Oh, dear God. Tony was sure now more than ever that this Brian Smart was killing people, including Roger. Mm Mm-hmm. Tony told Brian that he knew he was behind the disappearances and that he was going to go to the police. Brian laughed and said nobody would believe him. He had gotten away with it before. Why would this instance be any different? There was little effort by the police up until this point, mainly because they had no leads. Brian had every right to be cocky towards law enforcement, but he made a mistake by not killing Tony. Tony then contacted the authorities and told them there was a man strangling people out in Hamilton County in Indianapolis. Right. The police attempted to locate the property, but were unable to nor could they attach any of the homes in the area to Brian Smart. But Brian continued to contact Tony. Unfortunately, he usually called a cell phone or payphone, untraceable 25 years ago. During some of these conversations, Brian dropped hints that he had killed many people, and men kept disappearing from the same bars. That's when Tony saw Brian again. When Brian was leaving the bar, Tony followed him outside and got his license plate number. The police were able to identify the man as Herb Baumeister. Mm. Baumeister was thought of as a sweet, sensitive, happy-go-lucky kid. Then puberty hit and things drastically changed. It wasn't a quick or obvious kind of change, but the passions that drove him and things 
he was interested in became increasingly twisted. He started to develop a fascination with death. He began to divulge his antisocial behavior through obscene jokes and pranks. Herb wasn't afraid to blurt out his thoughts around the other boys in his class anymore. He wondered aloud what urine would taste like, then began chasing the other boys asking for a drink. Ew. That was a more benign instance of his change. But when Herb wasn't chastised for his behavior, he began to up the ante. He urinated on a teacher's desk and once left a dead bird on another teacher's desk. Okay, that's when it's when dead animals start popping up. That's when there's like we need to really step in and and fix the issue. There's a problem. here. Yeah. He loved to play with dead animals, often squeezing them to feel the power of his hands. I don't like it. It aroused him. Yeah. Herb never dated throughout school and quite possibly didn't know if he was gay yet because of the wide range of emotions and fascinations he was developing. Herb never finished college, but he was intelligent and thought of as a good worker, um, but had trouble holding a job due to his bizarre behavior. He often made inappropriate jokes in the workplace that made coworkers uncomfortable. I bet. However, his family's fortune changed by opening and operating the thrift store. And the Baumeisters settled into their lives, with Julie often taking the kids to the family's lake home in the summer, leaving Herb to his own devices. Much of that time was spent cruising Indianapolis's gay scene. With an empty house to play in, Herb began taking men back there to party. He now had the freedom to explore his sexuality and act out his fantasies. They would end up in the pool where Herb would strangle the men with a hose, and the bodies began to add up when Tony Harris met Herb. Now, with a name and address, investigators were able to begin putting pressure on her Bowmeister. Detective Mary Wilson of the Indianapolis Police Department paid Herb a visit at one of his thrift stores. The visit visibly shook Bowmeister and heightened law enforcement suspicions. On the TV show American Justice, Detective Wilson explains how Herb got nervous and fidgety upon the visit. And when she presented evidence of him being seen at the bars around the time of these men's disappearances, it sent him into a panic. It was now known that the married father of three frequented gay bars. And this was like public knowledge. Right. When asked to search his property, Herb refused. So they approached Julie. Detective Wilson was conflicted because at that point she didn't know if Herb had anything to do with the missing men, and yet they were going to tell his wife that they were investigating her husband for a homosexual homicide. Julie's shock and sadness turned into anger and disbelief. She called Detective Wilson to defend her husband, saying he was never violent in his life, not once. To you? Yeah, to her. Now he was being investigated for murder? If they wanted to search the property, they needed to present a warrant, and Julie said she would personally give them a tour. Investigators only had Tony's story and circumstantial evidence and not enough to produce a warrant. Soon, the Bowmeister's life started to crumble. Their business started failing, and with Herb's increasingly unpredictable behavior, Julie filed for divorce. Although, she was still in denial over the allegations about her husband, but she wanted answers. There was a crucial piece of information that Julie had told her attorney and kept it from police. One time, her son had found a skull in their backyard and carried it inside to show his mom. Ma'am. She went outside and found even more bones. Ma'am. When they were originally discovered, Herb explained it away as the model skeletons his father used at his medical practice. 
He was a pack rat and kept everything. He decided to bury them in the backyard, and that was an acceptable answer to Julie at the time. Fine. Her attorney contacted Detective Wilson with the information. The police went out to Fox Hollow Farm and were finally able to do a search of the property. There were bones scattered all over the place. The large bones were further back in the woods, while the smaller bones were directly behind the house and had been buried. By this point, Herb had taken his son to the lake house and emptied the joint bank account he had shared with his wife. Fearing for her son's life, Julie had Herb served with custody papers before the discovery on his farm hit the news. Herb brushed it off as legal maneuvering and handed over his son to authorities. Detective Wilson wasn't able to arrest him because the body was found in another jurisdiction. The Hamilton County Police, on the other hand, could have at least detained him, but they didn't, saying they didn't know exactly what they had. Bodies is what you had. Yeah. Numerous bodies. Leaving the victim's families baffled. God, yeah. Once news of the bodies were found, Herb fled to Canada and ended up shooting himself. Sweet. Yeah. So never had to pay for his He never had to pay for any of his crimes, yeah. That's great. He left a three-page suicide note mentioning his failed marriage, failed business, and his children. He ended the note by saying, I'm going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep. (laughs) There was no mention of the skeletons found on his property. Eventually, the remains of 11 men were found, eight identified, including Roger Goodlett. Wow. Law enforcement estimated that Herb could have killed up to 27 people, but he apparently told Tony Harris it was closer to 50. Wow. Yeah. Herb was also believed to be the I-70 strangler, referring to the stretch of highways where the bodies of nine men were found during the mid-80s. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes. The deaths occurred during the spring and summer months only, which was Baumeister's season to kill. If it wasn't for Tony Harris taking the chance of leaving the bar with Herb, then who knows how long the killing would have continued. Yeah, what a brave man. Yeah. As for Fox Hollow Farm, this is where the horrendous legacy of Herb Bobmeister continues through his afterlife and of those men he murdered. Typically, buildings where gruesome crimes have occurred, known as psychologically affected real estate, are often demolished or left to rot. This was not the fate for Fox Hollow Farm. It eventually sold at a third of its $2.3 million asking price, according to the Indianapolis Star. Soon after moving in, the new owners started to tell of strange goings on, including shadowy male figures, one walking without legs, lurking around the backyard. It was the Graves family who eventually found out something sinister still lived in this home. Rob Graves and his family were looking to escape city life to a home with more space. On outward appearance, Fox Hollow Farm was more than perfect. It was a steal. As they toured the house with a realtor, Rob began wondering why a house that was so desirable and gorgeous didn't have anyone living in it. What was going on? As he thought about it, Rob realized it might be a property he'd heard about on the local news. Rob asked if it was where Herbert Baumeister had lived. The realtor said yes, and that's why it was such a good deal. I I don't know what year was this again? The uh, 80s? When they actually bought it, it was like, I think like 2000 or like 1994 or something like that. Okay, maybe not in the 90s, but I was going to say I'm surprised that there's not like a law that you have to disclose if like a murder has taken place on a property within a certain amount of years. 
Yeah. I mean, they did disclose. Yeah, but I mean up front, like before not wait for the it? person. Yeah, like not even before they tour it, but not wait for the person to ask. Do you know No, what I yeah, mean? you would think that they would need to before even entering the home. Like, like yeah. just letting you know like murders were committed, crimes were committed. 11 here. at least. Yeah. Like, anyway. Anyway, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so they still decided they could live with the fact that the house had belonged to Indiana's most prolific serial killer and bought it. Not me. No, not me for either. me. However, soon after, they began experiencing some very suspicious events around the house. Rob's wife, Vicki Graves, was vacuuming gravel that the kids had tracked in around the pool one day when the vacuum kept cutting out. The vacuum kept being unplugged at the extension cord. The third time startled her, and she felt as though someone else was there. It felt as though someone didn't want her there. Rob also worked at a car dealership, and his colleague, Joe LeBlanc, was chronically late to work. He had a terrible commute and needed to move closer to the dealership. Rob offered the spare apartment they had on the property. Joe wasn't phased by the history as the apartment had been gutted since the time of the murders. Rob helped Joe and his dog Fred move in. When they were done, Joe was so exhausted that he fell onto the bed and went right to sleep. He dreamt of running for his life. He was being chased by something bad. When he woke, he tried to run and hit the doorframe very hard. He collapsed onto the floor in pain. There were shards of glass everywhere and they had gotten into his hands. He didn't know what he was running from, but he felt he had to get out of there right away. Oh my god. One day, Vicky had come home from work to find Rob painting. While she looked at his work, something caught her eye. There was a man in a red t-shirt standing in their yard. As he walked away from her, Vicky realized that she wasn't able to see the man's legs. Just as quickly as his legs disappeared, the rest of him also vanished. Rob dismissed it as a potential serial killer groupie visiting mm, the, mm-hmm. the house. They walked over to the area where she'd seen the person and found nothing. Concerned for what Vicky had seen, Rob installed security cameras on the premises. Back to Joe's apartment, Uh, Joe was washing dishes in his apartment one night when he heard a knock on the door. The knocking became more insistent. Joe opened the door and found nothing. He looked around outside and saw no one. He closed and locked the door, unable to shake the uncomfortable feeling something was watching him. He couldn't see anything. Suddenly, a wisp of something grabbed his attention. Joe looked back into the bedroom and saw nothing. Even Fred was acting as though he'd seen something. Mm. Then one night, as Joe was taking Fred for a walk up and down the driveway, Joe heard something in the woods. Fred had stopped and the dog's ears were perked up. As they walked back, Fred took off running. Fred was chasing after a man in a red shirt. Oh my God. The man walked into the woods and disappeared. Fred still gave chase. Joe walked into the woods to get his dog. He wasn't sure if the man in the red shirt was bad news, but he needed to find Fred. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, with no warning, he came face to face with the man in the red shirt. No. Oh, my God. I'm going to. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Joe turned and ran for his life with Fred shortly behind him. Joe told Vicky and they realized they'd seen the same thing. Oh, my God. Another time, Joe was awakened by another insistent knock on his door. He called out asking who was there, but received no answer. He could feel the panels in the door vibrating from the knocking. Finally, Joe pulled the still vibrating door open and saw no one there. Oh my god. He did, however, see the door knocker still sitting perpendicular to the door. 
So like lift it up. Oh no, 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 no. I don't like that. While he watched, the door knocker fell. Making one last sound. Joe closed the door, bolting it shut, and began to feel, feel a bit safer. He went back to Fred, growling. Then Joe heard a sound like the doorknob turning. No. Something was violently battling with the doorknob. Oh my God. And finally it stopped. Within seconds, the door banged open (gasps) and wood chips flew across the apartment. Joe stepped outside and when he turned around, he saw a man in his apartment. No. This man was running for his life. Desperately trying to get away from somebody. Oh my God, my heart. Joe thought he'd seen one of Herb's victims. Yeah, for sure. Rob, Vicky, and Joe then began further investigating what was known of what had happened on the property. As they were viewing some old news footage that included pictures of the victims, Joe saw the young man who'd run through his apartment. Oh, my heart. That hurts. Yeah. One day, Joe was walking through the woods with Fred when the dog took off running. Joe gave chase, and when Fred stopped, something caught Joe's eye. He dug it out of the leaves and realized it was a human bone. He took it to Vicky and Rob. Vicky knew it was human and thought it was a femur. She also thought he'd found it in the area near where they'd seen the man in the red shirt. Rob called the lead detective on the case to report the bone, and the detective agreed to come out and show them where events had taken place on the premises. Mm Mm-hmm. The detective led them to the pool where many of the victims were believed to have been strangled. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, a friend of Joe's named Jeremy came to visit the house, and he and Joe were diving in to retrieve dead beetles from the bottom of the pool when Joe felt someone touch his back. He thought it might have been one of the grave's boys, but they were on the other side of the pool. As Joe swam back to his friends, he was pulled under. He felt fingers choking him. Jeremy watched Joe put his hands to his neck in panic like he'd never seen his friend's face before. Joe managed to escape and got everyone out of the pool before it could get them. Oh my gosh. One of the last occurrences Joe experienced happened one day as he was working at his computer. One night when the sound of metallic scraping startled him. He got up to find knives from his butcher block in the (gasps) sink and cuts in the wood on the walls. No. He wondered if someone could have been stabbed in his kitchen. After watching a ghost hunting show, Joe unplugged everything that could possibly make any noise and used his cell phone for an EVP session. In the kitchen, Joe asked if anyone was there. Within moments, Fred began barking. Joe took the recording to his computer for playback. When he listened closely, the response to his question was clearly, the married one. No. When Joe looked at the known victim list, every victim had been single. That was when it dawned on Joe that Herb had been married. Joe remains convinced that Herbert is back haunting Fox Hollows and his victims are still running from him to this day. That's what it sounds like. Um, And three years ago, the owners agreed to open their home for regular visits from the Haunted House Travel Company and groups have reported hearing voices, footsteps and other strange sounds and feeling sensations of being punched, hit... And in one case, choked. Oh, my God. So that is the story of Fox Hollow's That was farm. such a good story. That was so good. Like <laughs> one of my favorites that you've ever told. Yeah. That is so scary. Yeah, it's really fucking frightening. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Do they still live there? I don't know. 
Oh I, my god! I mean, they've opened it up to the public. To the public, I assume they're so like they, making money off yeah, of it. Yeah, probably, and bought like another house to live in. Yeah. Holy shit! That's so scare scary. Sorry, I have the hiccups now. They also there's there's um a bunch of ghost hunter episodes, uh, not ghost hunter episodes. Um, but like investigation and stuff. Something on yeah. There's a there's books on this. Like I'd never heard of Holy it before. Holy shit! Me either. Yeah, there's lots of stuff on it besides just Joe and. Vicky and the Graves account. Oh my god! I find I it love... odd that their last name is Graves. Yeah, yeah, definitely fitting. Wow, what a good story. All right. Yep. Well, moving on to uh, some fuck Mary kills. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, end it with a fun little note. End it with a fun note, and uh, we're gonna do. Right now, we're in the middle of the Olympics, so we're gonna do some some Olympian fuck Mary kills. Yeah. Yeah. So the Olympians I've picked for you, mm-hmm. fuck Mary Kill. Okay. Bobby Fink. Okay. Tom Daly. Yep. Or Letitia Buffani. Okay. Um We're gonna have to kill probably Tom Daly. Okay. I really don't have a reason for it. I just the other two are kinda hotter. Okay. To me. That's fine. So Letitia Buffani, I will sleep with and Bobby Fink, I will marry. Okay. Yeah. I would marry Tom Daly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was British. Yeah. Yeah. And he just seems like a good time. Yeah. He's also gay and I'm like, I would marry you. We yeah. We'd be best friends. That's fair. And then, <laughs> best, best friends. Um, That's true. And then I would have sex with Bobby Fink and I would kill Letitia. That's Sorry, cool. Letitia. She's very pretty, though. She is very pretty. Uh, okay. So mine are Alex Pietre- Pietrangelo. Okay. Uh, he is Ice Hockey Canada. Hot. Okay. Hot. <laughs> um, oh, Sean White. Okay. Sean White. All right. And we are going to go with Naomi Osaka. Oh, God, I love her. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to marry Naomi. Okay. Right off the hop. Okay. We're going to kill Sean White. Yeah. And I'm going to have uh, sex with uh, the, the handsome the, gentleman at the beginning, the Peter handsome, or something. The, yes. Uh, Pietrangelo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pietrangelo. Alex. 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 Yes. I will have sex with him. I agree 100% if he would have with me. those choices. Yeah. If he would have me. <laughs> Perfect. Um, good luck to all the athletes yeah. uh, around the world. <laughs> yeah. But special shout out to the Canadian, Canadian athletes, athletes that are doing their thing right now. The Canadian now. women are apparently killing it. Killing it. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. I heard the Canadian women, women are, are just killing it. I haven't watched it. any of it, but heard no. that they're doing great. So fantastic for them. <laughs> awesome. Female power. Yeah. Girl power. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. That's well, it for paranormal. Um, oh, Next week, we're obviously doing a hometown haunt episode. So if you guys want your scary stories to be read during the episode, you can email them to paranormalpod at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram, paranormalpod, and DM us them. We would love to hear them. You can follow us on our personal Instagrams. It's at Splendora underscore. And it's at Nicolina Savelli. And... Other than that, we just really want you guys to rate, review, and subscribe. Mm -hmm, Because that's showbiz. And we want you to stay spooky. Please. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 